Hey, everybody. I'm glad that you guys are here. If we've never met, my name is Tony Boscarino. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Riverview. And Anthony is on vacation this week, which gives me a really great opportunity to share with you as we continue this series called Messy Masterpiece. And what we're doing in this series is we are looking at the church of Corinth from Paul's first letter, 1 Corinthians. And what we've seen about the church so far is that, one, it is absolutely and perfectly loved by God. God sees it as his masterpiece. But we've also learned that they are kind of a mess. They are a work in progress. They've got a lot going on. Uh, the last few weeks, we've seen that they're fighting over leadership. They're having issues with jealousy. They are struggling with what it looks like to follow God's wisdom versus the wisdom of their culture and their world. And today, we are going to look at another downfall of the church. We are going to look at their failure to deal with sin within their body. So this is what you guys signed up for today. Hey, it's going to be awesome. Uh, this is an interesting passage that we're going to look at because I feel like a lot of churches throughout the years have not handled this very well. Some churches, when they look at sin, um, they kind of overlook it or act like it's not there or sweep it under the rug, and they really emphasize only the love and grace of God. But what that does is it cheapens who God is because you don't get that picture of an almighty, holy, powerful God. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where there's some churches that are so focused on, on sin. They're like policemen. They're looking for everything. And if you're not meeting their certain degree of holiness, well, then they boot you out of there and you are not welcome. I don't like that either because what that does is it misses this incredible love and um, just redemptive power of Jesus as his grace just takes over someone's life. So my heart and my desire is that we somehow find a balance. You know, when Jesus came to the earth, it talks about in John 1, that he was full of grace and truth. And that's really my heart for us at Riverview, that we would be serious about sin because it is so damaging, not just to the person, but to the, the whole church. But then when we deal with it, that we would be just so full of love and grace. And so that's my heart, that we have both of those just like Jesus did. But we're not going to be able to do that and live that out unless his spirit works through us. And so before we open up this very interesting passage of scripture, let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is in the name of Jesus that I come before you today, that we all come before you. God, um, we believe that your word is truth, and I pray that you teach us how to live it out. God, I pray that you would lead me in what to say, and that you would empower the words that I say, because if it's just me saying my own words, no one's heart is going to be transformed, no one's life is going to be changed, but when you move, people can have everything changed, and that's what I'm really going after today. Father, I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts to know the truth, and that we would have surrendered hearts to follow you completely. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So at the very outset, I want to tell you that we are going to be going through a lot of scripture. We're going to be diving deep in. And so right now, if you haven't already, if you got a pen, maybe a good time to get it. If you got some notes, worship folder, get out your Bible because we're going to be going into God's word this morning. So we're going to start at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is where we're going to be. And just to set this up a little bit. 
there is a situation that has been ongoing within the church in Corinth. And Paul was notified about it. And he actually writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, and in chapter 5, he responds to what he knows is going on within the church. So what is going on in the church? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm just going to read a few verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Wow, that is uh, an interesting situation that's going on with the church. And so there's a lot to break down this morning. So first he mentioned sexual immorality. So in the original Greek language that Paul would have been talking about, or using, there's one word for sexual immorality. It is the word pornea. If that sounds familiar to you at all, it's where we get our English word pornography. And so in the Greek language, this word pornea is really an umbrella word, which uh, covers all sexual acts with a forbidden partner. Okay, that's the definition of pornea. So it's any sexual activity outside of a husband and wife in marriage. And so in this particular situation, it is referring to a man who is sleeping with his stepmom. And that's what's going on in the church. Something not even pagans would do. And a pagan is someone who hasn't surrendered to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And this is a huge problem for the church. If you were here when Anthony kicked off this series, he mentioned that the church in Corinth, their role was to impact and transform the culture that was around them. And it's not only that church, but it's our church and every other church. The reason they were in Corinth was to impact the culture. The reason we are in, in Ashland is to impact the culture. But instead of shining this bright light of Jesus's power to change lives, what we see is they're actually leading the way in sin, doing things that even those outside of the church weren't doing. And I found it really interesting that Corinth is a very sexually immoral culture, but they weren't doing this. Why not? Well, uh, through the research, I found that it was actually in Roman law that you could do tons of things sexually, but you could not sleep with your stepmom crazy. find it very interesting that they picked that out. So the idea is this is a very immoral act, but it's also illegal. And this is going on within the church, and the church is proud about it. Why would they be proud? Why would they take pride? Why would they not deal with what's going on? These are the questions I was asking myself. So through study, I, uh, I found a couple different reasons why they may have been proud about what's going on. The first is this. This may have been an example of the church, again, following worldly wisdom, following the wisdom of the culture as opposed to godly wisdom, like Anthony talked about a couple weeks ago. Now, just talking about Corinth again, uh, Corinth was a sex-crazed, sex-saturated city. If you remember, Anthony called it the Las Vegas of the day. What it was was a place where almost anything goes sexually in that society. So much so that sexual immorality was a basic part of their everyday life, and they saw it as an act of worship. Corinth was home to the shrine temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, and sexuality. 
This temple contained hundreds of female prostitutes, which frequent worshipers of Aphrodite would go to the temple on a usual basis, have sex with these prostitutes, and then they saw it as a form of worship. And that was absolutely normal. That's like an everyday occurrence. And so we've got to think their culture was saturated with this mentality. So put yourself in the shoes of these early Christians, the member of the members of the church in Corinth. Um, Paul had only planted this church a few years before writing this letter to them, so they are very young. And they're first-generation believers. Paul showed up in their community, preached the gospel, they surrendered to it. They're the first ones that have become Christians. They don't have parents in the faith. They don't have grandparents in the faith. Now, all of a sudden, they are in this position where they have got to reorient their entire lives to what God desires and what God's design is, because they've been growing up in a totally different world. And so everything about their thinking has to change. And concerning sex, they are learning that to God, sex is sacred, that it shouldn't be cheapened by immorality, but honored as a gift from the Lord to be treasured between a husband and a wife in marriage. Their bodies are no longer simply for experiencing pleasure, but to be given wholeheartedly over to the Lord. And this message would have been in direct contrast to everything that they knew growing up. So due to their upbringing, some people think that maybe it was that cultural wisdom that had worked itself into the church so that they weren't dealing with the sin that was going on with this man. A second plausible option is that they could have believed the lie that because of the grace of Jesus in their lives, because of the forgiveness of Jesus in their lives, then they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies. And this is a lie that I believe also works itself into believers today. So have you ever had this thought in your head, ever? Well, I know that I'm forgiven now and I will always be forgiven. So if I choose to do this, I'm already forgiven. So I might as well experience this, or watch this, or do this with this person. Has anyone ever had that thought roll in their head? My hand is way up in the air because I for sure have had that. And I'm kind of surprised that no one else does, but I guess, hey, me and Austin and Andrew in the back. Okay, and Tyler. Good, good, good. Look at the hands. So we've got four of us. Okay, that's a reality of life. We have a real enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy our lives, and he's going to use everything he can to get us to slip and to get us to fall. But that is so far from the truth. Like, that thinking is so far from the truth. Galatians 5, 13. Just write down the reference. We'll have it up on the screen. You can look it up later. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia, and he's telling them, yes, you're free. Yes, you are forgiven, but do not use that freedom to allow you to fall back into all the sin that just kept you captive for so long. You've been empowered to live differently. And then Paul again, writing to the church in Rome, in Romans 12, verse 1, write down the reference. He says, therefore, I urge you, it's like this passionate plea, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's not in view of God's mercy, then go do whatever you want. It's that in view of God's mercy and grace that we've been given a gift that we could never earn and we could never deserve. In view of God's incredible love for us, 
then our response is to give our whole lives to him, our mind, our body, our heart, everything to the lordship of Jesus as an act of worship to him, everything that we are. So whatever the reason for the pride in this man's sin, Paul tells them what their proper response should have been is mourning and to deal with the sin. Look back at verse 2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So basically, what Paul is saying here is, I'm, I'm not physically with you, but I'm with you in heart. I'm with you in spirit. And I realize this is wrong and this must be dealt with. I've already passed judgment on this man. So Paul's reaction is incredibly strong. And why was it so strong? Well, I think it's because Paul realized what the church in Corinth apparently did not. Paul knew the devastating effects of sin. And that is something that I personally need to be reminded of. And I'm thinking that maybe many of us in this room need to be reminded of that too. Because Satan, again, he wants us to believe, like the Corinthian church, that sin is not a big deal, that it doesn't matter. But it is huge and detrimental, not only to one's personal walk with Christ, but also to our collective church body. So real quick, here are four things, um, four effects of sin, and we'll have them up on the screen. The first effect of sin to the believer is it hardens one's heart to the Lord. Write down the reference. I'll read it for you. Hebrews 3, 12, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What he is saying here is that if we are choosing to hold on to our sin, what happens in us is it makes our hearts hard to the Lord. So it makes, us, it, makes it difficult to hear his voice. It makes it difficult to you know, feel his presence. And then it makes it really easy to believe the lie that maybe God's not there. Maybe he has never been there. And it makes it really tough to want to read God's truth. It makes it hard to want to pray. It makes it difficult to, to worship. It makes it really hard to want to even be around other Christians. This is what happens when we just continually hold on to sin in our heart and don't confess it and repent of it. It impacts our relationship with God. And it's just like this downward spiral that continues to lead us away. And it's not that Jesus has gone anywhere, but just the closeness that we had with him is just destroyed. And I've seen this so often, you know, with friends and people that I know that uh, someone's passionate about Christ at this time in their life, but then they allow sin into their heart, and then they don't deal with it, they don't confess it, they don't repent of it, and then more and more it just hardens them to God, and then they continually just move away from a close, personal relationship with Jesus, which is why Jesus came and died, so that we could have that with him. And if I'm honest, it's not just my friends and people I know, it happens to me too. When I'm struggling with sin, and I'm not choosing to humble myself and confess it and get it out, then my heart starts to harden, and I don't really want to go after Christ. I don't really want to read this. It happens, and I'm probably not the only person. The second thing sin does to the believer 
is it opens the door basically to Satan to come in and just wreak havoc within your life. 1 Peter 5.8, write down the reference. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We read that, we think, okay, yeah, I know that. You can think about what that says. Like, actually take that in. This is what God's truth is saying to you, that you as a Christian, me as a Christian, as I go throughout my life, there is this prowling lion that is just like walking around trying to see if there's any weakness, if there's any opening that he can jump in and pounce. And when we are holding on to sin and we're not willing to confess and just like humble ourselves before the Lord, what we're really doing is holding open this door saying, you know, come on in, free entrance, do whatever you want in my life. And it's not just that we're giving him entrance into our life, but we're also giving him a foothold. In Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about how when someone has anger in their heart, which leads to sin, then it gives the devil a foothold, literally something to hold onto. And in my mind, I imagined a hand holding onto a foot, like a foothold. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so let me think about it this way. So uh, I was thinking about the football game on Friday. Blue Jays, undefeated. Hey, okay. So I'm imagining a football player, and he's, he's running with the ball down the field, and then all of a sudden the guy has the foothold, and he's just not letting go, and the guy's trying to get rid of him, and he's dragging him down. What's happening to the guy who's carrying the ball right now? Like, he cannot move forward like he wants to. He cannot, like, go completely free like he wants to because he's being held back. What's the other thing that happens? When that person is not letting go of that foothold, then that slows the guy down, and pretty soon, this guy's teammates are coming to knock this dude out, right? You are vulnerable to more attack when we allow this stuff to sit within our heart, you know? And so then, if we confess and we, like, repent of it, then we're freed of that. So holding on to sin, very detrimental for the believer. But there's another thing that sin does. Sin, number three, grieves the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, a follower of Jesus, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. God literally lives in you. And I emphasize Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role is to lead you towards Jesus and away from sin. But when we sin, we're actually grieving the Holy Spirit. James 4, 5. Write the reference down. Check this out. It says, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has called to dwell within us? What that means, the wording is a little funky. Basically, God is jealous after us. He wants all of us. And this thought came in um, to, to uh, a class that Jess and I have been teaching on Tuesday nights. Just last week, we were talking about how Jesus loves us intensely, and he invites us to follow him, but he does not want to share us. And if we are holding on to sin, it's not that he left, it's not like he'd gone anywhere, but he is just allowing us to be in that, be in that place. Why? Because he wants us to turn back to him and give our whole heart to him. Jesus wants us to love him the way that he loves us. He gave literally everything so that he could have a relationship with us, and he wants us to give everything to him, too. That's how this works. So it affects the believer, grieves the Holy Spirit, and finally, number four, it impacts the health and effectiveness of the church. And so this brings us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. And I'll go back to those that we skipped in a little bit. 
Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So to understand, you may need a little background. So the Passover talks about um, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were eventually set free. And reading those scriptures, God's telling them to get out quickly. Like, don't even let your bread rise. You are leaving. Move out. And so then they would celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, kind of with this idea that we had to run and get out of there. And so to the Jewish people, leaven represents sin and corruption. Okay? So what he's basically saying, is you need to remove that because it's going to impact everything. Just like the leaven impacts the whole dough, if you have sin within the church body and absolutely no one is dealing with it, it is going to spread throughout the church. This is a biblical principle that Paul actually shares in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you stick around a few weeks, you'll get to hear um, Anthony talk about that more. But basically what Paul says there is that when one part of the church suffers, Every part suffers with it. And so what we need to have is a biblical view of the church. The biblical view is not a whole bunch of random disconnected people um, who, you know, are, are not connected in any other way besides they show up on Sunday and sit in the same room. That is not a biblical view of the church. A biblical view of the church is that you're connected to you, you're connected to you, I'm connected to you guys. We're all connected and we all form one body. So, you know, some people are an eye, some people are a nose, some people are a foot and an arm. We're different, we have different functions, but we're all part of the body. So what that means is if one part of the body is sin sick, then that can then spread to the rest of the body. I mean, we're living in a pandemic. We understand things are spreading. What we're talking about here is like a spiritual pandemic as far as like if there's sin that we're just not dealing with, um, it's going to spread throughout the whole body. So how does this work? Basically, in this situation, they are just allowing this to go, and go on, and no one's having a conversation with this guy, and nothing's happening. So then what that's saying is that, that that's okay. That's okay to do. No big deal. But what then that leads in is that other people are going to be struggling with other sin, and then that's going to seem okay. And then you have this, and this, and this, and this, and this happening all over the church. And before you know it, we look absolutely no different than anybody outside. And that is a huge problem. We have been called to carry the light of Jesus and his gospel truth to a very dark and lost world outside. And we desire for those people to know Christ. But if our message is that Jesus transforms and changes lives, but then all those people just see there's absolutely nothing different about any of you, why would they want to go? Why would they want to be a part of that if they really don't see the gospel changing anyone's life? And I know personally in my own life, like I have people in my life that don't want anything to do with church because the people that they know around them are no different and in actuality may be worse than the people that they see outside of the church. And really, when the church is not highlighting the goodness of God and the transforming power of the Spirit to change lives, the Great Commission, which is the church's mandate to go into all nations and make disciples, basically, that is all but lost. 
That is why, I hope you're starting to see, it is so important for sin to be dealt with within the body. But how exactly do we do that? 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That is intense, what he is saying about this particular situation. Now, if you read this at face value, with no previous context for who Jesus is, how he lived his life, or understood how he interacted with people, I feel like you would read this and think, okay, Paul says this is a really, really bad deal, and the first thing we got to do is kick this guy right out of the church. That's our only option. We got to do that right away. But hold up a second. It's really important when we're diving into Scripture to take all of Scripture together because there's other places in Scripture where God actually talks about how to handle those within the church that are dealing with sin. So let's take a little detour to Matthew chapter 18, and you can turn over there with me if you like. Matthew 18, Jesus is talking at this point, and we're going to start in verse 15, and it says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So this is step one. Go to them yourself and point out their fault. So who goes? Well, whomever it is within the church that has a relationship with this person that knows what is going on. And then how does he or she go? Definitely not in arrogance, definitely not in pride, but with a gentle humility. Galatians 6.1, write down the reference. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And that is the key. So this person... Um, any one of us, if we're ever in this situation, we're really going brokenhearted over the sin that is affecting someone that we really care about. You know, we're speaking truth, but love is just overflowing. And it's coming from a heart that realizes, again, like we've talked about, the damaging effects of sin, and not only the way it impacts the person that we care about, but also the way that it will actually impact the entire church. And it talks about pointing out the fault. And Really, to me, this is not so much saying, you did this, and I'm better than you, and you, I can't believe you did that. What it really is, is it's emphasizing that what this person is doing is not living up to who they said they wanted to be when they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so when someone comes to Christ, like they are also saying, God, I let go of control of my life. You're the driver's seat. I'm, I'm trusting you. And in this situation, it's basically saying to that person, this is not who you said that you, you wanted to be. And more than that, it's not who you are. You know, like telling that person, like, you are extremely loved. God absolutely loves you. You are forgiven. You are empowered. You don't have to go back to living like life without Christ because you can trust him. He's good. He's faithful. Live out of your identity. And this is what Paul says over and over and over again through his letters to the church. Live out of who you are. Freed, empowered, loved child of God. Don't go back to living captive to sin. So when you do go to a person, 
what you're looking for from them, you're going with humility, and you're looking for from them is also humility. And what you're asking for is repentance. So you're looking for humility for that person to own, like, and you know what I did, this is what I did, it's not okay, and confess that. But then you're looking for repentance, which is really a change of thinking. That's what that means. It's a theological term. It just means that I used to think this way, now I'm choosing to think this way. So when someone is holding on to sin and they do not want to confess it or deal with it or bring it to the cross, what they're essentially saying is, God, I am Lord over this area of my life. I am Lord over this and I'm going to choose to do this. Repentance would be, God, no, I'm changing, my, I'm changing my thoughts. I'm recognizing that you actually are the Lord over even this area of my life. And so I am surrendering that to you, recognizing your lordship over this area, and moving forward. And then back to verse 15. So if they listen to you after you have that conversation, you have won them over. That's great. Then there's restoration because there's grace and abundant forgiveness, okay? But if they don't, then we move on to step two. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Basically, these are the same conversations that happened in step one, but there's a few other people that are involved in uh, this process. And if they, if they choose to surrender that, great, restoration, love, grace, forgiveness. If not, we move on to step three. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, what does that mean? Well, at RCC, what this means is coming to the eldership of our body and bringing our leaders into it. And so at Riverview, we actually have a group of men who have committed to carrying on the responsibility for the spiritual health of our church. Those men are in place to make sure that we are keeping our eyes on Jesus, that we are living gracious, and that we are following the truth of God's word. And so it's now bringing them involved. And so then more conversations are, have, uh, are had there. Now go back to that verse. If they still refuse, it says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So pagan, again, is someone who doesn't receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior. So this is where that break in fellowship that Paul was talking about finally comes in. But I want to emphasize, we do not get here quickly or nor without like a great deal of prayer and heartfelt seeking the Lord. It's not a quick process. It's really like the last resort because God's ultimate will is reconciliation and healing. But I do believe that it's necessary, again, not because the sin is just hurting the person, but also because it affects the church. It affects the health of the church. It affects the witness of the church to a lost world. And so we at RCC have actually developed this step-by-step -step process of how this would be played out if, in fact, we ever have to deal with a sin issue like this. But before we leave Matthew, I want you to look at that last line again. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Without thinking too carefully, you may ultimately think that that means that you just like turn your back on this person and, you know, you are dead to me kind of life, you know? Like that's, that's not necessarily what I feel like he is saying. I think he might be saying more. Think about it like this. Matthew, literally the man who wrote the book of Matthew that we are reading, the man who wrote Jesus' words, treat him like a tax collector, was a tax collector. He himself was a tax collector. So when Matthew thinks, you know, treat him like a tax collector, 
He could be thinking of his own life. I was a tax collector, but Jesus invited me to leave my life of sin and really follow him. Matthew's, Jesus, uh, Matthew's coming to Jesus moment was him sitting at his tax collector booth, um, you know, living this lifestyle where he's ripping people off. He's completely dishonest. Jesus says, follow me. He gets up and follows him, and his life is absolutely transformed. And so to treat someone like a pagan or a tax collector maybe is really just meaning to continually invite them to let go of their sin and to follow Jesus. It's really what happened in step one, two, and three when people continually go back to this person and just say, will you, will you let go of this? God absolutely loves you. Will you turn back to Jesus? But the situation in, in, in Corinth and why sometimes there is a break in fellowship is because sometimes people absolutely do not want to do that. So this is the way that I see it. I see if the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, the church has their eyes on Jesus and they're moving and following Jesus and going into a lost and dark world where people don't know him and sharing the awesome power of Jesus. That's what the church is doing. They're moving. But if this person is holding on to sin and does not want to let it go, essentially they're going in completely different direction. And so really they have made their choice to not be a part of what the church is doing. And so then therefore that's where the break in fellowship comes. Um, it's kind of like the church goes this way, and then we let that person go that way. And as I was praying about this, I mean, it's kind of a hard truth. It's a lot to like digest and think through. But I, I really felt like God kind of led me to the story of the prodigal son. So go with me on this. So in that story, um, the younger son comes to his father, asks for his inheritance, and the younger son has sin in his heart, and he just wants to get away from his father's house, and he wants to go blow it and live a crazy life. So he does that, and his father lets him go, you know, just says, go, you can do that. What happens in that story is that the man eventually comes to this place where he hits rock bottom, and where he realizes, you know what, everything was bad, was better back in my dad's house and with my dad. And I kind of think that that's the thought um, and the hope that's there in, um, back in 1 Corinthians 5, where, where Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It sounds harsh, but I think it's more a hope of restoration, that just like the prodigal son, when he hit rock bottom and decided to come back, that by the church basically throwing, you know, letting this person just go after their sin, that they would, in hope, actually realize that life is so much better with Jesus and with God's people, and I need to come back. I need to let go of this and actually surrender back to Jesus as Lord. And just going back to that um, prodigal son story for a second. So what happens, if you know the story, is the son comes back, and the father sees him when he is really far off. And so then the father runs out to him, you know, lifts him up, embraces him with this big hug, and, and it's great. But what that tells me is that I feel like every single day, the father is, you know, looking out to the horizon, looking over the hills, hoping that his son would come back. And I think that that would be the same heart that our church would have. If we ever had to get to the place where we actually had to break fellowship with someone else, I would hope that it would not be a lock in the door and we turn and forget about that person, but that it's this continual desire, this want to be restored, because that is truly who God is, that we would have that heart to hope that that person would someday let go of that and choose to come back into following Christ, living for Christ, and surrendering to 
to Christ. And I mean, the big picture is, like, every single one of us sin all the time. I do not want you to hear that, like, if I'm in a part of this church, I have to be absolutely holy and never mess up. Because if that's the truth, I'm not speaking. You have no speaker today. And you're probably not sitting there because we can't live up to that. The heart of the believer is to recognize that I need to live every single day on daily dependence on God's grace so that when I sin, when I choose to do something wrong, then my response is not to hold it and keep going down that path, but to come humbly before God, to confess that sin, to receive his abundant, amazing, incredible grace that's always been there, and then to be restored, right? And so in this particular situation, it seems that, that that guy did not want that to happen. And so then eventually the relationship was broken. But all of us need God's grace every single day. So um, I've shared a ton at you. I know there's a ton of information, but I don't want you to walk out thinking, oh, that was kind of an interesting process, and I wonder if we'll ever do that. That's not going to be great. I would actually love for you all to leave here challenged. So I have a couple different things. The first is, if the whole time that I've been talking about this man who's been holding on to sin in his life, if the Holy Spirit is like convicting you of something that you know is buried within your heart, I would challenge you to deal with that with God this week. Like it said in Hebrews, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If sometime through this message you heard the Holy Spirit prick something like, hey, this is an area that we need to talk about, then I challenge you to not just harden your hearts, but actually go home and talk about it with God, and even invite other people into it if you need that. Um, so that's the first thing. Secondly, if I've been talking about the church's response to coming alongside of someone, and if there's someone that just pops in your head that you really love and care about, but you know that they're making um, decisions that are not God's will for them, I challenge you to actually pray about going to that person in humility and out of love and saying, hey, like, this is not who you said that you wanted to be. And more than that, it's not who you are. This is not who you are. And I just want to share this. Back when I was a college student in Michigan, I had a good friend of mine who I know at one point in his life wanted to love and, and serve Jesus. And he started making some decisions that were not in God's will for his life. And it was just kind of eating me up inside. And um, there's only one time where I talked to him and just kind of skirted around the issue. Like, hey, do you think that's a great idea or whatever? And he's like, oh, yeah, no big deal. And I didn't, I didn't actually do anything about it. So then looking at his life, um, his decisions led him to some really hard spots, and it really affected his relationship with God. I have no idea where he is now. I hope he came back to the Lord, but I know for a long time it was really rough. And I just think about that sometimes. Like, I just... I just really wish I would, have, I would have said something, just been honest with the guy that, man, I care about you. This is not who you said you wanted to be. This is not who you are. But I didn't do that. Now, had I done that, would his life be different? I really don't know. But I do know that I wouldn't keep thinking about it like 15 years later, which is huge, okay? So... If that's, if you're feeling, if someone pops in your head, just trust God and go for it. 
And then thirdly, I just want all of us to pray for our church. Like it is really, it's, it's really difficult to live out how to be in balance with truth, that we're standing on God's truth, and then also to be this perfect balance of love and grace. But that's who Jesus is, and that's who he calls us to be, and that's how we've got to be. We've got to take sin seriously because it is so damaging. But then when we do that, we want to be so loving and gracious because, right, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's the love of the Lord that leads people to repentance. And if we're going to be that kind of church that is grace and truth, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us do that. Okay, so please, please pray for our church. All of us are in desperate need of grace every single day. Let's just choose to rest, rest in that. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, your word, it challenges me. Um, and God, it, I just, I know it's truth, and I want to figure out how to live this out. And so, Lord, I just pray that um, you would help us uh, just as a body. God, I pray that we would come to your word, that it is truth, and that we would hear your spirit, and that we just wrestle with what does this look like to live this out, and that we would depend on your spirit to do that within our hearts. Father, I just pray for if there's anybody in here that just feels convicted about sin they're holding on to, God, I know that you want freedom for them. You want life. You want joy. You want peace. All those things that are just stolen when we give our heart to sin. So I pray that they would just confess that and choose to make you Lord of that area. Lord, I pray for those in our lives that we know that just maybe they're just not living up to who they are in you. I pray that you give us the grace, the strength, the ability to live out what you've called us to and to be um, really your voice into their lives. Ultimately, Lord, I'm so thank you. I'm so thankful for your grace every day. There's absolutely none of us that have the right to stand before you, but through the grace and love of Jesus Christ, we can. So we thank you for that, God. Help us to live out grace and truth in the name of Jesus. Amen.